Good morning, everybody. We got this middle section that's empty again once the kids leave. It's like everybody moves to the back on me. Nice and full this morning for worship, though. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you, worship team. Jeremy leading that this morning. Thank you for leading us into worship, giving us an opportunity as the bride of Christ to boldly approach the throne of grace is the way the scriptures place that. That God wants us there. He invites us there uh, to come before him, to worship him, uh, to ask of him, and just to sit in his glory. And so may we be reflections of that glory uh, throughout the week. May we become a reflection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, That's my prayer for you guys. That's my prayer for myself and for my family. Yeah. And going through first and second Samuel has given us an opportunity to reflect on godly leadership. Um, if you've been with us for a while, you know, we're working our way through first and second Samuel. We are officially in second Samuel now. Uh, and so we're going to keep plowing ahead. We had a wrap up week a couple weeks ago where some of you shared what God's been teaching you. Very powerful. We'll be doing that again at the end of second Samuel. So if, when you're going through these sermons, when you're hearing them, when you're reading maybe later in the week or reflecting on what God has taught you, and there's something really cool that he's doing in your life or that you learned, highlight that, circle that, and then commit, not to me, but to your church body here that you'll be willing to come up and share. Because really, that's the important thing. How is God changing our lives? What is God doing in my heart? How am I being broken to be rebuilt? right? How am I changing patterns that I've had in my life for years and years and years that now I'm seeing maybe aren't the healthiest, but I'm going to move forward in in a new way. And those are the things that we're able to learn through scripture. And it's really powerful when we can share that with each other and encourage each other. So I'm giving you like a three month, three and a half month warning that we're going to ask again at the end of second Samuel for some volunteers And I pray that God will prepare your hearts, that you won't feel conviction from us or us pulling you or twisting your arm to get you up here, but that you'll want to do that uh, because those really are the best Sundays. And so we're going to continue today in second Samuel, uh, looking at David, right? I mean, we've been waiting this whole time. We've kind of seen David, but Saul's been king all the way through first Samuel. We've seen how David's done a really great job in honoring God, honoring God's anointed and waiting on God's timing. Talk about lessons that I need to learn, right? Waiting on God's timing instead of pushing my own agenda forward, right? So a lot of things we've been learning. It's been great. Well, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul dies, and we're moving into 2 Samuel, right? And and David has been the anointed one. He is supposed to be king over Israel, and this is the story of how this is going to all take place. And there's not going to be even resolution today. I mean, it's going to take a few chapters, but again, I think we're going to be able to look at some godly principles and apply them to our lives, to our families to our neighborhood, to our workplace, uh, and hopefully grow as we move forward. That sounds good to me because I want to continue to grow. Does that sound good to you guys this morning? Amen? Amen. Let's move forward in the uh, book of 2 Samuel. Um, Philistines, Israelites, Amalekites, all these towns that are hard to say and names that are even harder to say, we're going to keep moving forward in those, okay? And so, uh, you know, there's going to be more names, more towns, more things going on. But David has kind of returned 
Okay, at this point, David has returned to Israel, not all of Israel, which we'll learn a little more about today, but he's back into Israel. He's trying, okay, he heard that Saul died and that his sons died. Um, so is it time now, God? You know, some of those are the kinds of questions that are going through David's mind because he's been holding back, staying on the outskirts, trying to follow what God has for him and not push forward in his own agenda. And so today we're going to continue to move in that. Last week we saw David mourn the death of Saul, the man who had been hunting him to try to kill him, the man who had hurled a spear at him at least twice that's recorded. Uh, the man that wanted David dead more than anybody on, the, on this earth was God's anointed. And even though God was upset with him, David trusted God to take him out in his timing. And so when Saul finally dies, last week we saw a beautiful chapter of David mourning God's anointed. Also, Saul's son, Jonathan, who was his best friend, and the, the, the family, Saul's family, and David mourned well. And, and so we saw that. Uh, a lot of other things have been going on. David's family had to move quickly. Remember, his, his town was ransacked and burnt to the ground. So there's some upheaval. He's trying to figure out where he's all at and that sort of thing. That's where we're at today. And, and we're going to start seeing a pattern this week that'll carry on for a while, and it really is the truth uh, that we got to remember, that a house divided is a house distracted, okay? If you're not focused in on a goal, if you've got a lot of different things going on, uh, and, and, and there's division, maybe amongst spouses, maybe amongst mom and dad and the kids, maybe amongst the kids, that there's a lot of distractions going on. And so we're going to look at this chapter today and actually a few verses into chapter three and, and see what God has for us today. So here we go. Starting in verse one of chapter two, after David, or I should say after this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? Remember, he had just found out that Saul was dead. He knows he's God's anointed and he, there's still a lot of unrest and upheaval and unknown. So he says to God, shall I go up into any of the cities? cities of Judah. And the Lord said to him, go up. To which shall I go? And he said to him, to Hebron. So David went up there with his two wives, also Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were also with him, everyone with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. A lot in these first couple of verses. So let's pause there really quick um, and see what David does here. And what he does is what he should do and what he has done pretty consistently through first Samuel. He seeks the Lord, right? He knows that Saul is dead. He knows that he's an anointed he could have said, now's my time. Everything is clear. I'm going. I'm going into the heart of Israel, and I'm going to claim what is rightfully mine or what is mine. You've anointed me, God, and through Samuel, the prophet Samuel. And, and Saul's dead, so I should go forward. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't just go back home and take the crown. He seeks God. And I know that we've talked about this multiple times through 1 Samuel. Right? And you're probably like, okay, Pastor Mark, this is a broken record. We've heard it, right? Seek the Lord. But I'm telling you, how many times do we make decisions on our own and we don't seek the Lord? We make a plan and then we ask God to 
bless our plan, right? This is my plan. This is where I want to do. God bless my plan instead of going to the Lord beforehand and saying, God, what do you have for me? So this is awesome. I want to, I'm going to nail, or I'm going to hit the, the nail on the head every time David does this to remind us. David has set a pattern in his life of seeking the Lord first. I want to become a man that does that. I'm not there yet, but I'm working on it. And I want you to become a people who do that. Let's seek the Lord in anything that we do, anything that we say, uh, and, and, and be like David. David could have gone up, gone into Israel, started recruiting people, right? A lot of strategy, PR, like, who am I? What am I going to do? This is me. I'm the new wave. Like, you know, follow me. Uh, and yet it wasn't. He said, you know what, God, what do you have for me? And so again, God desires that sort of relationship. And I hope you believe that today. This Christianity in its truest form, is not a religion. It's not checking boxes. It's not being here on a Sunday morning. It's not uh, standing up when everybody else stands and sitting down when they sit down and putting a little money in the, the basket when it goes by and going back and taking communion. That's not what it is. It's a relationship with God. And we need to see each part of worship as that. So when you're singing here, maybe you're not a great singer, Right? I, my prayer for you, if you're not a great singer, because that's where I'm at, that you will get to the place where you can sing with all your heart, because it's not for you. God sees your heart. He doesn't hear you, right? We go to a concert. We want to hear good music. It's pleasant to our ears, right? God is looking at our hearts, okay? It's pretty cool, right? God wants the genuine you to come before him in worship. And we could go through each part of a worship Sunday morning, and, and it's personal, with God. When you go back to take communion, it's not a ritual. It's you going back there and taking a piece of bread that represents Jesus Christ's body that was nailed to the cross. And you're dipping it into juice that represents his blood that was shed for you, right? And when you acknowledge that and when you pray to God and you thank God for that sacrifice, you, that is something that you're doing out of your heart or we should be doing out of our heart, right? When we, when we sit through sermons, Right? It's not so that you can check off a list that I, I've heard this, you know, sermon now. But it's how is God moving me to become more like His Son, Jesus Christ? Right? And so again, like I said, we could go through all, communication in relationship is key. We see that here in David's life. Uh, and, and he wants to continue to submit to God's plan and not his own. May we be a people that do that too, right? When God says go, right? He says go to David. David says, where do I go, right? So if you feel God nudging you to go, to move, whether that's physically from this area or maybe into a new job or whatever, instead of just going, ask for more clarification. That's what David does here. He says, where do I go? And God says, go to Hebron. And David brought his whole crew. This point, probably with wives and children, you're probably looking at about a thousand people moving into this town of Hebron, right? This is a lot of people moving north, coming to that place. Now, Hebron, according to scholars, what we were reading this week was the most distinguished city of the Judahite territories, okay? So this was a, a, a pretty big deal. This town was big. It was a Calebite city, 
And we know from the stories here in the history and genealogy that his wife, Abigail, was a Calebite. Okay? And we also know that it was an ironic city of refuge. Okay? Aaron was a priest, and they set up these, uh, these cities of refuge, right? And Abiathar was the Aaronic priest that was, that, that kind of was in charge of setting this up, right? And this was set up as a city of safety for those who had been wrongly accused. In this day and age, there were judges uh, that had been in, in uh, control of Israel that would hear uh, a dispute amongst people and then make a judgment call. They were supposed to be men of God, right? And they were supposed to seek the Lord in their judgments. But the reality with such a, a, a sparse environment, if someone were to die at the hand of someone else and one person thought it was an accident, the other person thought it was murder, sometimes they would take uh, those kind of situations into their own hands. They wouldn't wait for the judges, right? They would do it on their own. Well, what was set up is these cities of refuge set aside for those wrongly accused, especially of like murder, and people could go there and find protection until the situation was settled out. Some of them living there the rest of their lives, right? And, and so this is Hebron. Okay, it's it's a pretty main place, but David moves there with his thousand people. Then God's word, right, came true, the one that was given to us, really, as we read, but to his people, through Samuel, the prophet, that David was to become king. And we see that here at the end of uh, the, the slide that's up here in verse 4, that David is finally anointed of king, but only the king of Judah. There were 12 tribes, okay? One of the tribes here, Judah's, is acknowledging David's kingship, okay? These were kind of David's people, right? Right now, he is only king over Judah. Luckily, we're going to continue on through 2 Samuel, and you'll see the rest. But that's where we're at through this slide. So the end of verse 4 here is where we'll pick up reading And it says, when they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now if you've been here every week, you remember we knew that it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who went out and retrieved the body of Saul and his sons and gave them a proper burial. David is finding out about that here at this part of the story, okay? So this is David's response to these brave men who went out and risked it all to bring back the body of their king and his sons, okay? And and remember that this might have been Saul's greatest victory as a king was in in relationship to this town in Jabesh Gilead. Remember, they, the, the Philistines came and, and gave them the option to either die or to have their eyes plucked out. Okay, this is back in 1 Samuel 11. If you weren't here, you could pop back there this week and read up on this. But these men of Jabesh Gilead uh, had, had done this great thing uh, for Saul, 
retrieving his body so that it wouldn't be humiliated any longer. But Saul had actually done a pretty incredible thing for them. Because this was when Saul took an army and went down there and saved that city. So again, we see how God's hand is in this, uh, the plan, his providence. We see how it plays together. So there was a, a loyalty that these men felt to Saul that, that caused them to risk their lives to go out and do this great thing. And David wants to reach out and say, hey, I know what you did and I appreciate it, right? You loved Saul and his sons and that family. I also loved Saul and his sons. Now, this is a good move for David. Right? David's now king. He's just king over Judah. And he reaches out and says, thank you to these men for doing this. Right? What we're seeing here is David's being a uniter. Right? He's, he's taking opportunities to speak the truth, to thank people when they need to be thanked, to move them along to see, okay, Saul is gone. David is now here. He says, may the Lord, uh, or may you be blessed by the Lord. Right? He is calling for God's blessing upon these men, their families, their town. May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. The word used here for their, the, their loyalty and God's love, both the, the word that's used for both of those things is hased, and it's that love, right, that, that, that God shows to his people. Bottom line, if there was any fear in the town of Jabesh Gilead, now that their protector was dead, there need not be. David saying, I know what you did and I appreciate what you did. I can be trusted. We can move forward together. David will protect them like Saul did, right? God will protect them. He says, not just me, but God, may he bless you and keep you. God's anointed king will be your king also. Verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So again, the writer here is giving us some facts of what's going on here. Abner, the uh, cousin to Saul, Saul's military commander and his closest confidant, right, is here. He survives, right? He becomes the kingmaker, at least in his own mind. And look what he does. He takes the one Saul, uh, Saul's son, the one son that wasn't there, Ishbosheth, and he makes him king. Now, in, we got to remember back earlier when we read that Saul and his sons had died, this is the one son that didn't go to battle. It was much like what we do with the president and the vice president. You keep them in different rooms, right? I mean, seriously, that's what it was. If something bad were to happen in this battle, which it did, it didn't wipe out all of Saul's sons. So this was a son that was kept out. So if you remember hearing Saul and his sons were killed, that is true. It did happen. This was a son that was kept out from that. 
Now, Ishbosheth may be king, but it's going to become later, uh, clear later in the story that really he's just Abner's puppet. Okay? So he's kind of like going to be the king over Israel, set up by the guy who was in control under Saul. Um, and, and so we have just kind of the story here being placed or, or, or kind of set up so that we know that David has been accepted by Judah, but not necessarily all the tribes in Israel. Now, the place that's being described here, Mahanam, is east of the Jordan River, so likely escaped uh, the ravages of the Philistine War. In other words, the Philistines hadn't gone over there, hadn't destroyed it, right? And this becomes the capital city of Israel for a while. This area is very important, and it's probably untouched because it's further out from where the capital had been. Now, David has made Hebron the capital of Judah, we know that, so we got these two different capitals. And you're going to notice that David is king in Hebron for five, about seven and a half years. And Ishbosheth is only going to reign over Israel for two years. Again, a lot of these are just some of the facts that the author wants us to know. But most likely, after this time, when he, when he dies, Israel just doesn't declare a king. For, for some, for several years, right? And, and, and once Saul was killed, they were kind of a mess. And we see that continue on through the leadership here. But that kind of sets the stage for where we continue to go. Abner, verse 12, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanam to Gibeon, and Joab, the son of Zeruah, And the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on each side of the pool. And the other said, uh, the other on the other side of that pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So Abner takes his men toward King David. He's bringing them into battle. Okay? Abner is not satisfied with what's going on. He wants to go after David. So, He's probably trying to establish some sort of stronghold, if not defeat David, uh, in this Judite territory, right? As he's moving his way towards maybe a battle with David. And it looks like he expected a fight because he brought along a hundred, these hundreds of soldiers with him, right? So he's coming out, he's got the men. And, and he's moving towards David. That's Abner. Now, Joab took some of David's men to meet him. He finds out this, this group is coming towards him. So he takes men to go out and meet him. Don't let them get too close to David. And they meet at the pool of Gibeon. This is a hand-carved reservoir, 37 feet in diameter and about 82 feet deep. This is a deep hole uh, full of water. And this is where they meet up. And Joab is not going to allow Abner to advance any further. He says, nope, stop. You're not coming any further. You're not getting closer to King David. So here we got men measuring up men. There's hostile feelings. This is not good, right? So we got some guys that are ready for battle. Both of these men, Joab and Abner, are warriors. They're hotheads. They're ready to go into battle, right? They want to go towards the violence. These guys are fighters, So this standoff is broken, though, when Abner challenges Joab to choose some of his men and let them have it out hand-to-hand combat. Let them, these young men, compete before us, he says. And Joab says, okay, 
let them arise. So let's see what happens here in these next few verses after this situation has been set up. Then they arose and passed over uh, by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side. So they all fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurum, which is in Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Okay, it ends with this battle, but let's first look at these 12 guys from each side. This is kind of a crazy story, okay? I believe the author of Second Samuel, so I believe this happened. But look at it. This, this battle is over as quick as it began, 12 from each side, they, they kind of match up against each other, right? I don't know who said go, but the battle starts and they each grab each other's hair, right? I was talking to Kevin about this this week, and of course Kevin doesn't have any hair, so I was envisioning grabbing his beard, right? And he was grabbing my hair, and we both have our swords, and like I thrust it into him, and he thrust it into me, and, and we both dropped dead. But this happened 12 times at the same time. I mean, this is a crazy story, right? What a picture, uh, of this. The men of Israel are divided, right? David and Saul's house. And yet here we see them united in death. I mean, what a crazy story here, right? And, and, and yet God's calling his people to be united. And here we see more of this division. The, the, for all of history, this field will be remembered as the field of hostilities, even to this day, right? This altercation between brothers, Right? They're all Israelites, and it would mark Israel for all of history. So this hand-to-hand combat really didn't decide much at all, right? And we were kind of thinking back over history. Sometimes these hand-to-hand combat things don't. Remember all the way back to David and Goliath? Right? The, the, the deal was, hey, Goliath was standing out there saying, if any one of you come out and beat me, we'll be your servants. Right? And, and he did this for 40 days and nobody would go out because they were all afraid of Goliath and rightfully so. This guy's huge. But then David says, I'll go out there and I'll do this. And he goes out there and he beats Goliath. But the Philistines didn't become the servants of Israel. Right? So these kind of things have happened before. And, and this hand to hand combat, this battle that was going to go on really didn't take care of anything. But now we see here at the end of these verses that war is broken out between Israel and Judah. And yes, Israel proper is all of it, but Israel is what we'll uh, refer to those, those northern tribes and then Judah all by itself down there. We can discern that the outcome was according to God's revealed will. Again, smaller, Judah alone defeats the men of Israel. It says here that the men of Israel uh, were, def- were beaten before the servants of David that day. So it was a decisive victory. Verse 18. Did I skip one there? Give me a second. Nope, that was it. All right, sorry. And the three sons of Zeruah were there, Joab, which of course we already knew about, Abishai, and Asahel. Now, Asahel was swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he would neither turn to the right hand or to the left, but he kept following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, is that you, Asahel? 
And he answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn to your side, to your right hand or to your left. Seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So the battle starts. We hear about the battle's conclusion. But now this is a story that goes on in this battle. So we're trying to keep all these characters straight. Like for me, the best way to do it, I pulled out like an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper this week that was blank and I start writing names, you know, and I'm, I'm drawing arrows and trying to figure this out because all these names, they're a little bit different. A lot of them start with A. I'm trying to figure out who's who, right? So we got to keep our characters straight. Joab commanded David's forces and we learned that he had two brothers with him as well. That's what it says there at the very beginning. It brings up his father, throws in another confusing name, but really it's Joab and his brothers. Now Abner was Saul's military commander and now Ishbosheth's military commander. Remember that was the son who was kept behind, okay? So he's the real authority here in Israel. He's playing the puppet, right? He's he's the guy with the hand, the puppet master, right? So Ishbosheth is playing the puppet king behind what Abner wants to have happen. Now we get the feeling that Abner is likely wearing full armor, carrying weapons. They were going to battle. Remember, they were ready to do this. And, and we also learned that Asahel was known for his speed. Okay? So, I mean, again, in, you know, I know there's some fast people out there. If you're chasing a guy, and especially if he's in full gear, you're probably going to catch up to this guy, right? He's probably less armed, but he's really fast. And he's counting on his speed to win that battle. All right? And so there's this engagement between the two of them. And Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of the spear, so that the spear came out his back, and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to that place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. So here, this is kind of a weird story, right? The slower Abner, right, even though he was on the wrong side, he wasn't doing, obeying God. He wasn't doing what he should have. He, he taking the opportunity to distance himself from Saul's family and come back to the Lord. He wasn't doing that. Although he wasn't making wise decisions, he still wasn't stupid. So he's in full armor. He's got his spear. He's got his stuff. He's telling Asahel, go, go pick on somebody else. You don't want to do this. We know that Asahel is running real fast and he probably doesn't have on a lot of gear. Right, and so Abner here does something. Uh, he he wants to spare Asahel. It appears he's trying to say, "Go pick on somebody else," but instead, Asahel continues to chase him down, and and he refuses to stop his pursuit. So Abner uses the butt of his spear as he's coming up behind him. Right, the non-aggressive blunt side of the spear is what they're saying here in first Sam, or second Samuel as is written, likely intending to knock the wind out of him, right? Have you ever been punched in the gut? You kind of lose the wind. Maybe he thought he could get a, away from him, but he hit him so hard that he ended up killing him. The speed, the strength, the two things combined, right? Abner connects right in the wrong place. 
and this freak accident happens. And, and it was such a weird thing, an awful death, that all who came, the author writes, stood still. They were in awe. They didn't know what to say. They saw what had happened and they couldn't believe it. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Gia, on the way to the wilderness of Gibbon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? So Abner finally rallies his men together. They take the high ground, yet uh, Abner doesn't seek to work this to his advantage. He's now trying to avoid further uh, destruction and deaths and battle. He points out to Joab, this is not good. This can only end in bitterness. After all, we're all brothers. So now he's calling out the brother card, right? I don't know if if he's using wisdom, if he truly believes this, or if he's trying to be savvy. It's hard to tell. But Joab says, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have not given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. So although Abner was wrong and is in the wrong, he speaks these words, whether wisdom or just trying to get out of this situation, and praise God that Joab listens to this, and he he responds in a way that's good for his men. He hears what Abner has said and wisely chooses to end the battle. Okay, I'm done. Abner had just lost his brother, right, the little brother that probably was faster than him, you know, and probably had already picked on him uh, his whole life being the little brother, and yet he loved him. He had two brothers in the battle, and he had lost one of them. So there was probably a desire of revenge, and yet he sees the wisdom in stopping the battle, right? He has every right to pick a battle with Abner. He, he has every right to go after him. You just killed my little brother, and yet he uses restraint, Now, we were talking this week, this kind of restraint and the idea of unity. We got Israel, right? We got the northern tribes and we got Judah and and the the desire for David to unite and God's timing and and really like what's left in 2 Samuel. And as we were thinking through this, we were like, okay, so how can we apply this to us, God's people here today, here in this story, right? Because this is a battle. This is kind of crazy, Right? And yet we started thinking, we were like, okay, are there going to be people there, or are you and I, Kevin, are, are we people that, that have a, a beef with one of our brothers or sisters in Christ? Are there, are there people that we either think have wronged us or we've wronged and we haven't gone back and corrected that? We haven't gone and apologized. Maybe, maybe they're the ones that are in the wrong, and yet you could be the bigger person and go and uh, apologize to them and try to repair that relationship, right? And, and we started thinking through that, and really what, that's kind of what we got going on here on a grand scale, but in our lives, I think we're guilty of the same thing. How often do you hold a grudge towards somebody 
they look at you wrong, they ask you to do something that you don't want to do, and you think it's below you to do this, and or or, or however it is, it, it's so petty a lot of times. And we as as God's children are called to be bigger than that, and yet we don't. We hold grudges. We leave churches, right? Because we don't like the way something's done or the way that somebody said something to us. So we talked a lot about that this week. And I think for you and I this week, we can think about that. And the next week coming up to the next chapter as we're kind of looking forward towards that. Are we a people who holds grudges, you know, and gets upset? And, and maybe we make little things, little, you know, little molehill into a mountain, right? I've been guilty of that before, right? Taking something that somebody said. It offended me. Now I'm ticked. And maybe that person didn't even mean to offend me. How many times have I gone and talked to somebody? Hey, I got to get this off my chest. This is what you said. And they're like, wow, I didn't realize that. You know what I mean? That's happened to me multiple times. And I know that people have come to me and had the same beef with me where I've said something that was offensive to them or hard for them to hear. And I had an opportunity to say, wow, this is what I was trying to get at, and please forgive me, and how can we work on this relationship? So I hope this is an encouragement to you guys. It was to me this week, that idea of just unity. Christ has called us to be one. When we have people that come and check out our church, and they're like, hey, it's not quite for us. We're going to look some other places. We, we encourage people to do that. This church isn't for everybody, and the church down the road isn't for everybody. People need to find a place where they can worship and find community. And if that's the grace works for somebody, praise God. But if it's not, we want them to find someplace else. We need to be thinking about the church as the kingdom, God's kingdom, not our own. Not how build can we, big can we build the grace works, but how can we reach other people for the church, right? God's church. And so I think as, as a people, we can grow in this area. I know that I can, and we can desire the unity that Christ wants for us because we are brothers and sisters. And here to, to finish this, this part of the chapter here, it says, and Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, marching the whole morning, and they came to Mahinam. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. So 20 men total, right? But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his, the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men then marched all night and the day and uh, broke upon them at Hebron. We're going to go a couple of verses, like I said, into chapter three. Uh, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. Now, after the battle that, that had taken place, obviously we have some numbers here. There's kind of the licking of the wounds, the burying of men, those sorts of things, counting of the troops, the gravity of lives lost, right? Because the adrenaline's gone and now reality is starting to set in. So we see some things here. David's forces only lost 19 men plus Asahel, which is 20 men. And remember, 12 of those were in that little crazy battle, 12 on 12, right? But they lost 20 men, so only eight of them fell in battle. Abner's men, uh, Ishbosheth's men actually, lost 360 men. Uh, and so we kind of see the num- numbers here, 
right? God, uh, again, has anointed David, but because of the disunity, we're, we're having these battles take place. David is, is called to be the shepherd. He was the shepherd boy. Now he's called to be God's shepherd of his nation. And there's going to be these growing pains here. Uh, David, David continued to grow stronger, it says here, at the end of these verses, while Saul's house grew weaker and weaker. The war was going to take a toll on both houses. Uh, and it was long and it was awful. And yet, Israel has problems with all of its neighbors too. And so now you have this house divided is a house ineffective. Like we were talking about earlier, the Northern tribes and the Southern tribe, they need to be together and united in this to protect themselves. And again, the story will continue and we will see more of how that plays out. We're going to read the last couple of verses here because they kind of just tell part of the story, setting us up uh, as we go into next week. Verse two, it says, and the sons were born to David at Hebron the firstborn was Amnon of Ahinonim of Jezreel, and the second was Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of uh, Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth was Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth was was Shepatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth was Ithrium of El- Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Okay, so I get these verses out of the way. I don't have to read them again. All right, so let's talk about them briefly here at the end of this, right? We're not going to talk about polygamy at this point, okay? We're going we're to put a pin in that. We will get to that in Second uh, Samuel. Uh, David gets himself in trouble with women a lot. We know that going into this, it's been, it's been a struggle for him and it's going to be. So we're going to have opportunity to talk about this later. And again, for us as men, we're probably like, oh man, you know, uh, th- those are, those are battles that we struggle with, right? Is, is that area of purity and, and those sorts of things. And, and, and so this, we see here with David, God's chosen, a man after God's own heart, right, has a ridiculous lack of self-control in the area of sexual purity. But again, we're going to talk about this more later. I'm simply going to say this, that David is not following God's will or plan. From the get-go in Genesis, God intended one man, one woman. Okay. I mean, that's what we know. So we're simply going to say that and, and kind of put a pin in the other conversation that will come up later and we'll talk about it then. But at the beginning of this sermon, David had his two wives, remember? And he moves into Hebron with two women. Okay. He had Abigail, right? Who was, uh, the widow, right? And, and, and so we have these two women, uh, and already David is out of line with what God would have intended for him. Okay, but they're, they're with him when he moves to Hebron. Now, just a little while later, we see here about these other marriages, these other women, uh, and these sons that are born to these women, because David was doing what other kings had done. And this is why God had said, no, you don't need kings. I should say this is one of many reasons. What the kings would do in that day and age is they would take a daughter from another, uh, another country, 
usually the king or whoever was ruling there, they would marry them to strengthen or solidify relationships. Okay? And that's what's happening here. That's why all those, the sons were born to this woman and then, then it would name the father. Right? Because that was where the, uh, that, that was where David was making the deal, let's say, right? And then he solidified it through having children with that daughter. So he would marry them. Um, and so rather than concentrating, all right, we love David. We're going to continue to elevate the things that he does well, and we're going to learn from those. But we need to learn from the things where he makes mistakes too. And without getting into the whole polygamy thing, we know that David was not concentrating fully his efforts on what God had called him to do and trusting God that he would be faithful. So instead of ridding the land of the Philistines and establishing one nation, right, he's playing the political role, right? And, and he's doing what other kings had done. And he's marrying all these women, these princesses, and then having babies with them, right? And, and so we know that this is not God's plan, This is information that was given. It does have value to know and to understand as we move forward. But God was not happy with what David was doing there uh, in in these extra marriages. So we'll kind of pin that and we'll leave that there. We'll get back to what the rest of, I think, this chapter was talking about. This idea of a house divided is really a house distracted. As the worship team comes up, um, one of the things that we saw this week as we were talking is that division amongst God's people, right? So we had Israel, we have Judah, which should all be one country, right? Under God. Division is one of Satan's main strategies with believers. He wants churches to battle with other churches over members, over theological disagreements. Um, he, that's what Satan loves is when he can cause the church to lose some of its power because they're, they stop focusing on what God has called them to do, which is what we saw David do. David stops focusing on what God has called him to do, which is to unite the kingdom. And instead, now he's married another four or five women, uniting Israel or Judah with other countries. But he's not focusing on what God had called him to do. He knows that a house divided is a house distracted, right? And we gotta, we have to know that too, so that as we move forward. A lot of times we argue about many doctrinal issues that are important, but are not essential. And there's a huge difference there. There are some things that we need to know and believe and be willing to die for. But a lot of times, whether we have drums in the worship team or not, right? That's not something that we need to go toe to toe with other Christians about, right? And yet we do. So many of us, right, you and I know that, that these disagreements on minor points of doctrine drive wedges into relationships, into families. How many of you dread going to a Thanksgiving or a Christmas dinner because you got that cousin or that brother or that, you know, mother-in-law that want to argue with you about things that just aren't important? And sometimes... You know, I mean, they're not important enough to drive a wedge, I should say. And that's what we see here is sometimes the disagreements on these minor points of doctrine divide God's church and God's people. 
I think the church has become distracted, right, with these trivial things. They split over drums on the stage or the color of the carpet, the, the, the kind of worship songs that we sing to, whether it's too light or too dark in the sanctuary. And that list could go on and on and on. And I'm sure you guys have been a part of churches. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've probably heard arguments about those sorts of things. And yet God would say, what are you not accomplishing for my kingdom while you're arguing over carpet colors? We need to focus in on evangelism and discipline and, and worship, pure worship that honors God. We need, to, we need to focus in on learning more and more about Jesus Christ so that as we grow in our faith, we become more like him. So as a people, let's become a people who unite. If you, if you meet somebody in the neighborhood and it, it comes up that they go to a certain church, ask them about their church and, and, and celebrate with them about their church. And if you find out that they disagree with you on a, on a, a minor doctrinal issue, don't make it a big deal and, 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 and drive a wedge in that relationship. Focus in on the important things. And if you're still learning what those things are, find a place where you can learn. We got books, we've got, uh, different opportunities for you to grow in your faith. Because there are some things that we're not going to back down on. Jesus Christ is God's son, right? Amen. He died on the cross for you and for me. We don't have to earn our salvation. Some of those things I'm not going to back down on. But there are a lot of things that are trivial that sometimes we make into these huge things. And yet, what are we missing out on when we focus on those distractions? Help us to become a house that is not divided or distracted.